Hey everybody, thanks for checking out the Glendale Road Church of Christ podcast. You're welcome to join us anytime you're around. We are at 1101 Glendale Road in Murray, Kentucky. We meet for worship every Sunday morning at 9 a.m., followed by our Bible study at 10 a.m., and we come back every Sunday evening for a bonus worship hour at 6 p.m. Also, every midweek on Wednesday at 7 p.m., we have a Bible study. You'd be welcome to join us. We'll be sure to save a seat for you. Now, here's this week's sermon. Scripture reading this morning is found from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. If you want to follow along in the Pew Bible, it's on page 1861. 2 Peter 1, verses 16 through 18. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice, which came from heaven, when we were with him on the holy mountain. You may be seated. God is good. All the time. There are people today, much like in Peter's time, who believe Christianity is nothing more than a myth. Recently on a podcast, uh, there was the comedian and social commentary uh, commentator, Bill Maher, who was at, and it, what's so odd is the host of the podcast was Mike Tyson, the boxer. And so Mike asked Bill very candidly, he said, do you believe in Jesus? And Bill Maher said, no. And Mike, he asked me, he said, well, why not? And Bill's response was, well, it's, a, it's all a myth. Some people believe that. And it's, it's, to me, at least humorous, because the people that often believe that Christianity is a myth are usually the people that tout themselves as intelligent and more knowing than us. We're just simple-minded folk carried away by some fairy tale. But the reality is there's an entire branch of study in universities that studies the historical Jesus. And as a matter of fact, there's one of the most prominent scholars in that area is a guy by the name of Bart Ehrman, E-H-R-M-A-N. He wrote a book recently about the historical Jesus, but what's even more fascinating about that is he's an atheist. So he lays out the belief, the, he lays out the, the argument that Jesus as a person existed, that he was crucified according to Pontius Pilate and, and many other details. When he was given a lecture about this book, there came a part where there's Q&A and one of the ladies that had a statement, she said, I do not see evidence in archaeology or history of a historical Jesus. To which the atheist scholar replied, this is not even an issue for scholars of antiquity. There's no scholar in any college or university in the Western world who teaches classics, ancient history, or any related field who doubts that Jesus existed. Atheists have done themselves a disservice by jumping on the bandwagon of mythicism because frankly, it makes you look foolish to the outside world. Now, I I had a friend years ago having dinner at their house, and he made that statement. He said, well, you don't really know that Jesus even existed to begin with. I said, yes, we do know. 
We know for a matter of fact, and if you use that statement, that argument that, well, we don't know that Jesus ever existed, you are repeating sound bites that somebody else has said. You've not dug deep enough to study it for yourself because if you did, what you would find is that Jesus as a person who was born in Bethlehem, Jesus of Nazareth, who was a rabbi around that era, who was crucified by Pontius Pilate at the hands of the Romans, existed. Now, you may not regard him as God's son. You may not regard him as the anointed one. And that's at least an honest starting point. But to say that he didn't exist, it is intellectually dishonest and only goes to show that you've not done your homework because Jesus as a person existed. And we have eyewitness testimony on this very thing. This is what Peter is saying in 2 Peter ver, uh, chapter 1, verse 16. We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice, which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, Peter is referring to the Mount of Transfiguration and the false teachers that he is facing in this part of Asia. They're saying uh, essentially, well, it's just a fable. It's a myth, just like what many people say today. But whereas in our time, we don't have eyewitnesses in their time, they did. Peter was one of the very ones, along with James and John, they were on that Mount of Transfiguration. And so he says, look, we're not using some fable or myth or cunningly devised tale. We were there, we saw, we heard. Now, if you have your Bibles and wish to navigate, you can go back to 1 Corinthians 15, where there's another passage uh, worthy of our attention. 1 Corinthians 15, if you're in 2 Peter, you just take a hard left and you'll keep going. You'll come across 2 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians will be right before it. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 7. And you got to remember also that most of the New Testament, if not all of it, is written by people who knew and who saw Jesus. We get to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 7, and here's what we observe. For I deliver to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. So you have some in Paul's day who were alive that can say, yeah, we remember. Now, from the time that Jesus rose from the grave until he ascended to heaven was a period of about 40 days because Pentecost is 50 days after the Passover. And so we know from putting all these scriptures together that after he rose and from the time he ascended and from the time the apostles and all the other disciples were in the upper room praying and waiting, he was on earth for 40 days. And in those 40 days, he went about revealing himself to everybody. Now imagine you had been there. Imagine you had been there in Jerusalem and you had seen just how badly beaten he was. 
you had seen that He was even hoisted up on a cross. You remember when He took His last breath and His last words were, Father, into Your hands I commend My Spirit. And with that, He gave up His Spirit and dies. You remember even seeing that one of the Roman soldiers took a spear and thrust it through his side and he didn't even flinch. You remember that they requested to have the body of Jesus and it was granted and he was lifeless. You were there and you saw all those things and then a couple days later, people are saying Jesus is alive. And then you go around to some of the disciples and, well, who was the first to find this out? Well, this is the women. And you go, ah, women's testimony in the ancient world wasn't valid. So when the women go to the tomb and they see that it's empty and they run back and they say, Jesus is not there, he's risen. An angel told us. Well, what happens? The men get up and they say, we got to go see this because, you know, these women folk. And then they go and they confirm the very thing. The tomb is empty and then Jesus appears and through... Throughout those 40 days, he's seen by over 500 people. Now, if you'd been one of those people, you could have been like Peter and said, we saw. I mean, I was there when he was crucified. I saw that he was dead. But I also saw a couple days later that he was alive. And then you would obviously have had the explanation of the significance of that event. But you know that there are other people that are not Christians in the ancient world that wrote about Jesus. They've got no dog in the fight one way or the other, but they wrote about Jesus. One of them being Tacitus, who was a Roman historian. He wrote, Nero fastened the guilt on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilate. Now, Christus is a Latin variation of Christ, but there were folks in Jerusalem, uh, Rome rather, who, who were blamed for the fire of Rome. As a matter of fact, a lot of people believe that Nero, uh, the Emperor Nero, <clears throat> he set fire to the city, but he blamed the Christians, which led to somewhat of a persecution. But why would he have any reason whatsoever to write about Jesus other than this historical event? But he wasn't the only one that wrote about Jesus. There was a Jewish historian that worked for the Romans, Josephus, and in his book Antiquities, written about A.D. 93. By the way, Tacitus wrote about uh, the year A.D. 80. Josephus, A.D. 93. He says, about this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he wrought surprising feasts, he was the Christ. When Pilate condemned him to be crucified, those who had come to love him didn't give up their affection for him. On the third day he appeared, restored to life, and the tribe of Christians has not disappeared. So imagine you're some 60 years later, and if this had been something that was a farce, it wouldn't have lasted 60 years, let alone the 2,000 years that it's now endured, the faith. I'll give you one more. There are plenty of others that could be given. In a work that's called the Babylonian Talmud, it's a compilation of all the Jews and the, excuse me, all the Jewish rabbis' teachings. 
in one tractate called Sanhedrin. Uh, now, this was compiled from the year 70 all the way to the year 200. So the quote, I can't nail it down exactly. But they write in the Babylonian Talmud, on the eve of the Passover, Yeshu was hanged. For 40 days before the execution took place, a herald cried, he is going forth to be stoned because he has practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. So that's what the Jews' later reflection of Jesus was. Yeshu being the Hebrew version of the name Jesus. Uh, another variation would be Yeshua. But Yeshu might have been a shortened version. Kind of like how, you know, Stephen and somebody call you Steve, you know, or anything like that. So they acknowledge that he was hanged. But also they believe he practiced sorcery and that he taught apostasy. So if he never existed, why even write about him? In each of these accounts, and there are quite a few more that could be given, but I don't want to you know, just give you information overload, but I would refer to you two sources that I think you might find helpful, helpful if you're like me, a reader. The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Now, Lee Strobel used to be a journalist, and he was also an atheist. The Case for Christ is him using his investigative journalism skills to research this person, Jesus. And in the end, he ends up convicting himself that Jesus was real and that he was the Son of God, and Lee professes his faith. The next one is Evidences for the Historical Jesus by Gary Habermas. Both of these men write from the perspective of faith, and they have lots of information in there. So if you are ever, in, uh, if you are ever confronted with the notion, well, Jesus never really existed, you know, that says more about the one saying it than it actually does about the facts that exist. So there are a couple resources. We may have them in our church library. I don't know. Ernie Rob Bailey would be the one to, to ask about that. But I know we're working on opening up that library. And there are a lot of good books in there that have just been underutilized. So when, that's, uh, when that has come to pass, I hope you'll avail yourself of that opportunity. So you've got eyewitness testimony, but you also have people that don't have skin in the game that even write about Jesus. If he didn't exist, they would have never had reason to write about him. But it only goes to show that he did exist. We also have, as Peter goes on in 2 Peter, we have scriptural testimony. If you're back at 2 Peter 1, verses 19 through the end of the chapter. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but the holy men of God spoke as they were moved or literally carried by the Holy Spirit. So the Scripture isn't by private interpretation. It's not by the will of men. And sometimes, if you'll back up to 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 10 and 12. And I want, you to, I want to point this out to you because I think it's worth noting because sometimes even the prophets weren't completely aware of what it was they were speaking. They were speaking for God 
and there are some things they just go, well, we're not real certain of this. First Peter 1 verse, uh, verses 10 through 12, of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Another passage that could go along with this, 1 Corinthians 14, verses 1 and 2. First Corinthians 14, but pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue doesn't speak to men, but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. So we see that the notion of the prophet uh, was one who was one who spoke for the Lord, and it was so that everybody could be edified. It wasn't some cryptic, uh, unintelligent message. If you look down a little bit further, beginning in verse 26, how is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each one of you has a psalm? has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let them be two or three, or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there's no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed by, uh, to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So you have a situation in 1 Corinthians where uh, you have people that are able to speak in tongues, you have people that are able to prophesy, and, and various other gifts. Well, it, they're all just talking over one another. There's no order whatsoever. It's as if you're trying to listen to a conversation and this one saying one thing, that one another, this one another, and you can't keep up. And finally, you just have to go, everybody be quiet. And then you go, okay, you go first. You go second. And so it was kind of disorderly like that. But when the prophet was to speak, the congregation was to judge what they spoke. So their role was in communicating what God gave to them and the revelations that God gave to them. And what we notice is that the prophets recorded what they recorded, sometimes understanding, sometimes not understanding. But when Jesus came and he explained to them how to interpret the law, the prophets and the Psalms, then they were able to look at those passages that were somewhat difficult to understand and they were able to give them meaning. 
In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 13, just to stick with this theme. Second Corinthians 5, 13, for if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it's for you. Sometimes the, res- the, the revelations that the prophets received were sometimes in a state of what would be called ecstasy. Uh, not like how we use that phrase today, uh, but it was differently then. Besides ourselves kind of picks up on that. It's, it's the word from which we get ecstasy or existential. We'd say that it was an out-of-body experience. But the experience, however it incurred, protected the inspired men and women of God from error in their communication, which is very interesting. We go back to 2 Peter, and you look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And even though he he writes about the prophetic word being confirmed, he even goes a little bit further than that in chapter 2. There were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false prophets among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth has been blasphemed. By covetousness they will exploit you, and and with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber." Now look at the same book, chapter 3, verse 16. As in all his epistles, speaking of Paul's epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they also do the rest of the scriptures. A very unpopular sentiment that you will find in scripture, but that is not preached today, is that there is such a thing as correct teaching and false teaching. Sadly, so often the attitude is, well, it's okay for you to believe what you wish to believe, how you interpret that passage, um, and sometimes that is okay. But we have taken it away from matters of scruples and opinions and have applied it to what ought to be doctrine. Oh, your doctrine is different. Well, we look at folks and we go, well, you're sincere, so that's what matters. But sincerity isn't what matters. I really believe that Utzah was sincere when they were transporting the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem on that ox cart, and it hit some unsteady ground, and the Ark of the Covenant went to fall off, and Utzah, meaning well, being sincere, reached out his hand and stopped it. But yet, what was the result? He died. He died because he was not counted among those who God had authorized to transport the Ark of the Covenant. But he was sincere. Sincerity is no replacement for sound doctrine. And what Peter will go on to elaborate on in chapter 2 is that, yes, there are false teachers. And we don't like to believe that these days. There are false teachers even among our own people. So you can't always trust what a sign says outside of a building. 
It is not reflective always of what is being taught on the inside, sadly. But it was the Holy Spirit, 2 Peter 2, 21, who directed them. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. Sometimes when you have good teachings such as what the apostles taught and, and those that followed them, you have others that come along and they want to mix in with that sound doctrine something else. And then sometimes they'll take that something else and they'll find a way to justify it and they'll say, well, as a disciple of Jesus, it should be this because Jesus taught this way. Or Jesus never talked about X, Y, and Z, which is a very lazy way to look at it. But as far back as Moses' laws, there were instructions about the prophets and their words. Moses wrote about the prophets, I believe it's in Deuteronomy 13, I could be wrong, but if you'll read the whole book of Deuteronomy, you'll find it. I know it's in Deuteronomy. If there is a prophet who prophesies and what he says does not come to pass, they're to be put to death. That was what Moses taught. Also, if a prophet teaches you to do something other than what the Lord has clearly given you, you shall not obey that prophet. That's what he told them. So just because someone claims to speak for God, it's definitely up to us, we who are Christians, to be discerning and to make sure that what they teach is actually the will of God and not necessarily some newfangled take on the latest fad or trend. Now here's something that I found very fascinating. I'm not a mathematician, would never claim to be one. I know some of you are better at math than I am. I, I can balance a checkbook, I can do basic Subtraction, addition, division, I'm sure. But you get to the owls. I don't want anything to do with the owls. Algebra or the trigs, trigonometry or cal calculus. I don't want anything to do with that. Some of you need that. I don't. I, that's why I said I'm going to preach the word. Don't have to math. My daughter taught me years ago that math stands for mental abuse to humans, and I believe it. But there was a learned mathematician. He's since passed on. His name was Peter Stoner. He focused on the laws of probability. And he concluded that the odds of one person living since the beginning of time and fulfilling just eight of the messianic prophecies was one in the 10th to the 17th power. That means you have 17 zeros after that, if I'm not mistaken. Jesus fulfilled 300. What's the probability of one person fulfilling just eight? One in 10 to the 17th power. You mathematicians understand. Vegas wouldn't bet on those odds, okay? That's how much of a long shot that it is. But when it comes to Scripture, can we trust the Bible? That's something that usually arises. Now, when you ask me, Stephen, why do you believe in the Bible? Uh, my first answer is prophecy. For example, when you look at Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, when he speaks about a kingdom arising during the reign of the Romans, 
being a kingdom that shall never be handed over to another. It should be an everlasting kingdom. Daniel speaking about the church. And you see that he's given this prophecy uh, some 400, 500 years before this all occurs. And you follow the events, even of the statue in Daniel chapter 2, of the various kingdoms that will come. You have the Babylonian kingdom that stood at that time, and then the next kingdom that he, that he prophesied would come would destroy that one. And, and then you have the Medo-Persian empire, and then you have the Greeks, and you have the Romans. Daniel gave this vision and this interpretation of the king's dream but he couldn't say, oh, this is the Babylonians, this is the Persians, these are the Greeks, these are the Romans. He just says, these are the kingdoms that shall follow. And during the Roman kingdom, that is exactly when the kingdom of God is set up. That convinces me. Isaiah 53, <clears throat> and the way that that entire chapter speaks about Jesus, that's convincing. Isaiah wrote back in uh, the, the 8th century B.C., so to be able to write that down, not fully understanding it, and some 800 years later, it coming to pass as he told it, that's pretty convincing to me. But there's other evidence outside of Scripture that I would say is convincing, and that has to do with the amount of manuscripts that we have. So before I get to the Bible, let me, let me talk about some other works of antiquity. Sophocles lived from the year 496 to 406 B.C. Uh, he wrote tragedies, and uh, he has only 193 manuscripts. The earliest dates to the 10th century A.D. So you're looking at at least 13, 1400 years from the time he wrote his tragedies until the earliest manuscript that we have. I don't know, anybody read Sophocles? Y'all are thinking, Stephen's speaking in tongues, he's made up these words. So uh, Sophocles, you may have heard of uh, the Oedipus complex, right? People's heard of the Oedipus complex. Well, that comes from one of his tragedies called Oedipus Rex or Oedipus Tyrannos. Um, so, but these things are taught in humanities classes, uh, perhaps even if you're taking classics or anything like that. Okay, so Herodotus, who's regarded as the father of historiography, that is the father of writing history, uh, living in the time that he did in 484 to 425 BC, his history has only 49 fragments, the earliest dating to the first century AD. So about 400 years. And then you go on to Caesar's Gallic Wars, written between uh, Caesar living between 144 BC, 251 manuscripts. The earliest dates to the 9th century AD. So you're looking at 900 years from the time of the events to the earliest manuscript we have. Tacitus, the Roman historian that I mentioned a little bit ago, lived from 56 to 120 AD. There are only two manuscripts of his work, and they date to 850 AD. Now, these are works that people study that sometimes you have to read, and nobody questions the validity of those works. Now, when you get to the New Testament, there are over 5,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. 
There are, only, there are over 20,000 manuscripts of the New Testament in other languages, such as Coptic uh, or Assyrian or various others, Latin and so forth. And the earliest manuscripts that we have from the occurrence of the events is less than 100 years. So when you put the New Testament up against other works of antiquity, the New Testament stands to be more trustworthy than any other. The late textual scholar Bruce Metzger, who was a professor at Princeton Theological University, he concluded that there is a 99.6% accuracy and that no other ancient document has the documentary support that the Bible has. So when you have these people that say that, well, Jesus is a myth, when you have these people that say, oh, you can't trust the Bible because of this, that, or the other reason, there is always another perspective. Another perspective to the skeptics, another perspective to the doubters. And I say to you, we do not believe in a myth. We believe in a historical person who came from heaven to die, and he came to die to save humanity from the consequences of our sins. That is eternal death. That he existed is clear. That he died is clear. But what will you do with Jesus of Nazareth? That's what's not clear. You can continue to live as if you don't believe, or you can choose to believe in him and let him save you from your sins as well. I've given you evidence. Most of it's scriptural, some of it outside of scripture. He existed. I believe he is who he says he was. And if he wasn't the son of God, then he must have been a liar. But look at how he denounced the liars in his own time. He said that Satan was the father of lies and he never allied himself with Satan. So maybe he couldn't have been a liar. Maybe he was a lunatic who just believed all these wild things. But people don't tend to follow lunatics. Especially to the degree that he had a following. So You've got to make a choice. Either he was a liar, he was a lunatic, or he truly is the Lord. And if he is the Lord and you believe in him, profess your faith, be buried with him in baptism, have your sins washed away, and you become a new creature. Please, I pleaded with you a couple weeks ago and I'm going to do it again. Most of you in here have obeyed the gospel. You're Christians. Some of you, you believe, you're sincere, you're good people, but that is not enough. It's not enough. There is no reason whatsoever to put your eternal soul in peril of judgment, of being lost, of damnation, only because you think, well, I'll live so long and then maybe one of these days I'll do it. You've got an opportunity to do it. Don't let that opportunity pass. Please, please, please obey the gospel if you have not already. You can contact us. We'll meet you here. Or right now, you can come to the front as we stand together and sing.